Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about being neither complementarian nor egalitarian. And joining me to do that, we have Grace Sangalang Ng, who is a PhD student in education at Biola University. How's it going, Grace? It's going well. And we also have Grace Emmett, who is a PhD candidate in New Testament at King's College London. How's it going, Grace? Pretty good, thank you. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Michelle Lee Barnwall, who is Associate Professor of New Testament at Biola University and author of a recent book that we're excited to talk about called Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian, Reframing the Gender Debate with Baker. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Lee Barnwall. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. So when I was at Biola and Talbot, there were a number of debates on campus. You know, there was the Calvinism versus Arminianism debate. And some people would take a mediating position that they would call Calminianism. I always kind of jokingly referred to it as toilet paper Calvinism because they would take the T and the P of Calvinism, but uh, <laughs> nothing else. And then you had like m- different millennial debates, you know, premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. And somebody would say, well, I'm a panmillennialist because it's all going to pan out in the end, right? People would take these mediating positions. But I was always told that there is one debate for which there is no mediating position, and it's the issue of women in ministry. So very curious to hear about the title of your book and, of course, your position that you are neither complementarian nor egalitarian. So what is unique about your position? What exactly are you getting at? Well, that's a great question. And I think it is difficult, as you mentioned, a lot of people say, yeah, is there a way that you can be neither complementarian or egalitarian? Is there one where you have to come down on one side or the other? And basically what I would say about my book is in a lot of ways, my book is intended to be a conversation starter, um, a discussion starter uh, to get people thinking about their positions, because some of it just grew from you know, in some ways, I just say my own dissatisfaction with both positions, that there were a lot of things I really appreciated about both. For example, with the complementarian position, I really appreciate their, atten- their attention to gender differences and the importance of that. Um, with the egalitarian position, I really appreciate their desire to really bring women into the fullness of ministry and really think about um, the implications of Act Two. At the same time, I felt that I was dissatisfied with some aspects of both in that too. Um, some of it was maybe a little bit exegetical. I felt that some of the arguments, at least to me, seemed like they might be asking a little bit too much of the evidence. And some of the things I thought just didn't quite fit um, in that. So I think there was just like general dissatisfaction and then just kind of grew from some of my studies was a sense of maybe there's something more that we should be looking at. Maybe there's something in which the debate is a little bit too limited as we're thinking about things like gender roles and who has power and what is a hierarchy. And so in some ways, the intent of the book and the idea of neither complementarian nor egalitarian is the idea that perhaps neither position can really fully explain um, God's intent for men and women living and ministering together. So I guess in some ways, it's a bit of a prompt. I know sometimes people get a little frustrated because they say, but you have to tell us what women can do or what women can't do. And I guess my response is that, well, in some ways, I'm still working through a lot of things myself, but I do think that there is room for discussion. And what I'm trying to do is open up the discussion a bit more. You know, when I think about the way the complementarian egalitarian positions are laid out, what I try to do is try to expand the discussion a little bit. Uh, So, for example, some themes that I've come across are the importance of unity and maybe how gender differences play into the unity of the church. Um, Another theme that I came across was this idea of, uh, of a theology of reversal. 
how Jesus talked about the first will be last, the last will be first. And that made me think about things such as, you know, if we have an emphasis upon equality, but how do we sort of, how does that integrate? If Jesus talks about actually, there's a little bit of a reversal of this, um, you have these powers and these positions. So it was things like that that made me think about, maybe there are additional kingdom themes uh, that are unique to the message that Jesus talked about that can be added to the discussion that go beyond the current parameters of the debate. Yeah, thank you for that, Dr. Lee Barnwell. Um, I wonder if you might say a bit more about what you find to be sort of deficient in the current positions of complementarianism and egalitarian that's led you to have this kind of broader take on things. Yes, I think one of the things is, oh, I guess I'll start with the complementarians first. And the complementarian position, as we know, is generally the idea that um, men have a particular type of authority or leadership in the church and the home. And there's a lot of emphasis upon sort of, you know, sort of supporting that position. But if I'm thinking about things like a theology of reversal again, and I'm thinking about Jesus's words, you know, like he says in Mark 10, the whole idea of, you know, the whole idea of the rulers of the Gentiles, um, their great ones exercise authority over them. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be a slave of all. Uh, that's one thing that made me think about, it's like, well, even if there is a special type of, you know, male authority in the church, how do we integrate this with this idea that actually, if you're, you know, going to be great, you have to be servant and slave first. And when I thought about the complementarian position, there is a lot of talk about servant leadership, but it seemed to me that when it actually comes out that the idea of servant is seen as a modifier to leadership, that the core idea is leadership, but you do it in the manner of a servant. But I think when you look at this, these passages in the Gospels, and particularly when we think about it in terms of a Greco-Roman status ladder, um, their hierarchy, that it's really more of a paradox that, you know, you, in a sense, you can't be a leader and be a servant at the same time because they're on opposite ends of the ladder. And so you really can't have servant be a modifier. It's, it's supposed to be a mystery, like so much of what Jesus said. And this is part of the mystery of the kingdom. And so I, it made me think that maybe we really need to be thinking about some of those implications a little bit more. And one thing that kind of highlighted this idea to me is that we have this idea of servant leadership, but Jesus also says slave. And if you were to say something like a slave leader, then in that, the paradox becomes a bit more clear. I mean, it really is a lot easier with servant leadership to say like, oh, I'm, I'm leading, but, you know, hey, I'm really doing this for your good. And so, you know, it, sometimes it seems like re really comes out is, you know, be a leader, but be really nice about it. Um, but if you say slave leadership, that's something where really the opposites come into play. Um, here you have the slave who is supposed to be someone without power, without position, um, without influence, and how is this supposed, person supposed to be a leader? So it made me really think about, again, that maybe these ideas of leadership and servant leadership have to be investigated a bit further um, in terms of seeing their implications in that. As far as egalitarians, I began to think about, you know, the emphasis upon equality and rights. And as much as that's a good thing, it also struck me as being perhaps in some ways a bit 20, 21st century you know, in, in that regard, or maybe even a per, perhaps a little bit more American, Western uh, democratic societies in that, and just an emphasis upon fairness. It didn't really seem to be something that entered as much into the ancient mindset. And you could argue maybe that what was radical. But when I, I thought when I looked at the, um, 
and what happens in the Christian community, and John Elliott has done a lot of work in this regard, that his idea is that maybe it's not so much um, egalitarianism as inclusion. And um, the idea that everyone is now included as members of the new covenant community. And what's interesting about the idea of inclusion is you have a relational dimension that's there more than just this uh, fairness uh, dimension. And so for example, if you take a look at you know, Galatians 3.28, which has generally been a big anchor for the egalitarian position, uh, neither male nor female um, or Jew nor Greek, but what it says, it doesn't say that they are equal in Christ. They say they are one in Christ. And while certainly you can, you know, maybe you can argue maybe that, yes, maybe the oneness means equality or quality is embedded in that. But I think if you look into what oneness means, oneness, I think, is a very relational term. And this idea that now you have these, you know, Jews and Greeks, uh, that they hated each other, that they're hostile to another, they're antagonistic towards one another. And now they're called to live together in unity. They're called to love one another. And you really see, I think, some of these communal you know, dimensions that get missed if we simply focus upon um, equality. So those are some of the things that made me think that we have to look a little bit deeper. We have to think about some of the perhaps the corporate dimensions that are here, some of the idea of the mysteries you know, of the kingdom that as much as ideas that like authority, leadership, equality, rights are important and make her out of the text that I think we lose something if we stop there, that I think there's just something more in terms of the community that Jesus was, was bringing about here. So Dr. Lee Barmer, what would you say is often missing from this whole conversation about complementarianism and egalitarianism? Oh, I suppose in addition to some of the themes that I mentioned, um, perhaps maybe there's just a methodological idea here too. And I think what I'd like to see a little bit more is simply a critique of our basic assumptions. Uh, for example, the, the discussion is based upon, you know, is there authority and leadership, a particular authority and leadership for men? And, but I don't always see a lot of questions in terms of, well, what does that authority look like if it's there? Or what do we mean by leadership? It seems that often the discussion is, is it there or not? Um, and not as much energy ex is expended in terms of what does it actually um, look, what does that actually look like? And I think if we thought about that a little bit more, why every, why things are kind of revolve around that. And I would say the egalitarian position revolves around that too, because the whole point is there's in a sense, they're saying like, there is no particular male authority. There is no particular male leadership. So that becomes kind of the orienting question here. And I think what you see is this revolves around sort of assumptions that our paradigms are built upon power. Um, who has power? you know, in the church and who has the right to power in that regard. But if we're thinking that what Jesus did is he actually critiques a cultural power and redefines it. And there are things in the gospel that talk about power through weakness as God works through this, or the idea that authority comes from God, that we might think about maybe even our assumptions that this is based upon understanding power is something that needs to be redefined. So I think that there are a lot of assumptions that we make um, a lot of terms that need to be redefined uh, that we kind of take for granted and that those themselves might need to be looked at a little bit more. Uh, if I could go back to what you were saying about servant leadership, I love that observation that um, servant often becomes a qualifier for leadership. We don't think about the way that that's actually something of a paradox. And I think you're right that that concept is kind of mobilized a lot in uh, different discourses. I sort of think of the promise keepers, this Christian men's movement. 
we make a lot of what it is to be a servant leader as kind of being a real a man for Christ. But it is very much a servant and not a slave kind of leader or slave of Christ. And so I wonder if you could just unpack that for us a little bit more in terms of what you think that paradox is and how it's kind of working within these debates about gender. Sort of the general idea of servant leadership is that you're looking to the interests of the other person. Um, and in a sense, you kind of want to do what's best for them. But to me, that also seems like another thing where we have to think about what does it mean to consider what is best for them? Um, because I think one of the dangers we can run into is, again, assuming that we know what is best for the other person. And so we're thinking about uh, the idea of when Jesus talks about, you know, we're talking about like the dying to self and all that. And I think sometimes it seems that with the idea of servant leadership, it can mean like, well, I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. Um, to do what is best for you. But even then, I might kind of question, I might want to ask, is there, some, is there something further we can do? Because in a sense that if I assume I know what is best for you, there is a way in which I am not dying to self, you know, in that, because I'm sort of like, you know, evaluating is best for you based upon what I think is best, you know, for you. In particular, if we're talking about gender differences, and I think there's a sense, if we're trying to, if you know, how do men trying to understand women, women trying to understand men um, in that I would think for both people that a lot, there might even a sense be a sense of dying to self in terms of assuming what I think is best for me, may think what I think I would want, but it's not necessarily what is best for the other person, you know, if that makes sense. So I'm wondering if even in terms of this idea of, you know, serving one another and dying to self is a sense of kind of dying to, I might say like our own egos, and our own assumption that I know what it is, and maybe that does entail a little bit more listening to the other person, seeing where their heart is, even if at the moment I cannot necessarily understand or relate. Um, but to me, that seems a, a, an important part of this idea of sort of being a servant or a slave to one another, because in order to really serve someone else, I think it does take a bit of a dying to self because it entails a listening to that person and seeing where they are at. So perhaps even understanding what it means to, you know, serve one another, trying to seek their best is something where we need to do a little bit more thinking about on a deeper level as well. Yeah. So thank you so much for reframing the discussion and giving us how we need to redefine um, some of our terms. I really appreciate that um, redefining it to um, the paradox of slave leadership and also thinking about inclusion instead of power. And so um, in this discussion, what perhaps are some things that are overemphasized in the complementarian and egalitarian conversation? I think uh, in addition to some of the themes that I mentioned, um, and if you're thinking about maybe even methodology too and the categories that, I, that we use, uh, it seems to me that one of the things that might be overemphasized is this need to figure out everyone's place. Um, and this idea of gender roles, you know, again, not that it's not important, but that seems to be sort of like the defining feature, the thing where everything begins and ends. And I think I understand the reasoning behind it. I think for complementarians, there's a desire to kind of see if there's an order and what that order might look like. And egalitarians, you know, if there aren't limits on women, what women can do, you know, um, really trying to uh, figure that out. But I think when we place all this emphasis upon roles and what everyone's supposed to do, I think that leads to a certain way of understanding, you know, how we are supposed to live. And what I often like to do is give a bit of an analogy here. Um, when you're thinking about spiritual formation, you know, for example, if you have a new Christian, they come up to you and they say, 
you know, well, tell me what I should do. You know, can I see this movie? Um, can I listen to this music? And how often should I go to church? And, and you know, how should I pray? You know, tell me how to pray that you, you would want to answer them. But kind of deep down inside, you also know that you don't want to just tell them what to do because it's going to shape their spirituality in a certain way that you really want them to be understand, understand who they are in Christ and then how what they do flows out of that. And I think we have this intuitive understanding that we have to understand our relationship with Christ. We have to understand um, what it means to be in relationship with Christ, what it means to be saved, what it means to be a new creation in Christ, and that the doing flows out of that. And it's hard to just, and that if we just do it as a formula, that it actually might hinder someone's spiritual growth. And so then that makes me wonder if we run into the same problem, if we're thinking about gender roles. Oh, once I decide what women can do, then that's okay. Um, and that we don't do as much as sort of the digging in terms, okay, well, what is God's intent for men and women? How are men and women supposed to relate to one another? What is the basis for the differences? And what does that look like? And then, you know, maybe this is what it might uh, look like. So part of my concern tends to be that what happens if we simply focus on what people are supposed to do? And it does make me wonder if, you know, maybe some of the difficulties, you know, the hurt that has gone on or the conflict um, comes because we're dealing with it on this level. And therefore, conflicts come, difficulties come at this level, and we deal with it um, at this level. But I think as we're looking at some of these, you know, larger kingdom themes, we do see that there is this relational men and women together um, relational aspect. And I think that's just a legitimate concern, you know, in that. And if you just look throughout different aspects of scripture, you know, the idea of, you know, the one flesh union in Genesis, and it's picked up again in Ephesians 5, you know, Israel as the wife of Yahweh, the church as a bride of Christ, that you do see this relational aspect that integrates gender is a key part of how the New Testament talks about uh, male and female. And maybe this is what we understand naturally in terms of spiritual formation is something that, you know, that we should be applying to, um, to gender as well. Um, what we have, and so what we end up having is, again, a focus on what we do, emphasis upon you know, hierarchy, um, but maybe there's something a little bit more in terms of just how we live life that needs to go into our understanding as well. Yeah, that's like really helpful to see um, just that richer, fuller picture um, of gender instead of just looking at roles. So thank you so much for talking about that. I think that's really helpful to open up that discussion and see it um, through a lens of spiritual formation and discipleship instead of being like more rigid. So what does your alternative way or vision look like in the church and in seminary education respectively? Well, one of the things that I want to say is that, um, and I know this is one of the things that um, people find most frustrating about my book, because in the book, I don't come down and say, well, this is what, you know, this is what it looks like exactly you know, in the church, since a big part of um, the goal of the book is to get people thinking about it um, in that regard. But I would say in terms of the church, well, one of the things I like to uh, uh, tell people is that I'm not necessarily out to convert people, to make people uh, either complementarian or egalitarian, or either to do away with either the categories too. A lot of it is to get people to kind of rethink uh, some of their assumptions. So a lot of times what I'll say is part of my goal, my practical goal in this is to make complementarians better complementarians and to make egalitarians better egalitarians. 
because I also stand that there's a real practical reality in the church that for me, as I'm trying to work things, things out, and I'd like to see more discussion in the church, I also understand that the church that there are decisions that need to be made and people need to start somewhere. But I, I do hope that the thoughts in the book will help people, you know, think about, let's say, complementarians, how they're doing their complementarity, egalitarians, how they're thinking about egalitarianism. And so maybe one of the things I might think about is to really consider this idea of how uh, men and women can edify one another. Um, so, for example, the complementarians, to not just sort of say, like, well, here are our roles and here's where it is. Men do this and women do this. But how can you know, men build up one another? How can, um, how can men build up women? How can women build up men? You see this a lot in 1 Corinthians 14 um, in that regard. And, you know, for the egalitarians in the sense that it's not simply a matter of, well, now women, you know, can do this, but perhaps what does it mean to be a woman, you know, in the church? Um, how, how does my, you know, being a woman figure into, you know, my ministry? So my hope is that, people will be able to, whether complementarian or egalitarian, that they will be able to sort of take these ideas and perhaps enrich their own positions. Uh, they just perhaps soften some of the ideas. Um, and I'm, my hope is that you may be in the end by doing this, that will lead to some more conversation with one another as we think about how some of the ideas might, might integrate. I'm curious to know how um, this sort of more holistic approach to gender, I guess, that's slightly less focused on roles and is taking that kind of broader lens approach. What are the response to that has been from both complementarians and egalitarians? Overall, the response has been really quite positive in that. And I've been both, I guess, surprised and pleased too. Maybe I'll say a little bit relieved. I remember when the book first came out, I just had this sudden really worried thought. And I thought, oh my goodness, everyone's going to hate it. <laughs> you know, no one's going to be, you know, happy with it. And, but to my surprise, it really does seem to have struck a chord. And there's been a lot of positive response. Uh, one of the things that I think that that has surprised me is I think the number of people who have kind of said to me, oh, I've been kind of thinking in that same way too. You know, or I've been, you know, I mean, maybe I'm a complementarian, but this has kind of bothered me. I'm egalitarian. I've kind of wondered about this. And it just makes me wonder if, you know, this is something that kind of is going on in the church that we've been sort of divided in terms of complementarian, egalitarian for so long that now people are thinking it's like, well, is there something more? Is there something in which, you know, each side needs to be enriched or we need to understand a little bit more? And so I would say overall, the response has been Good. I mean, I think I've had a lot of good conversations with people. There are different places where, I mean, like here where I've been invited to come and talk about it. And it does seem that there really is an interest in really exploring these a little bit more, not necessarily giving up some of the other concerns and categories, but saying maybe is there something that we have been missing? And also when I've been, you know, when there have been critiques of the book, and I think the critiques are legitimate, a lot of them, interestingly, have not been so much a complete you know, no, I think your idea is terrible, um, but a lot of it more like, oh, well, maybe this is incomplete. Have you thought about this? You know, or can you be more specific about this? And that's one of the things I've just really enjoyed overall, because it does make me, you know, consider that maybe people are really thinking about this. And my hope is something that this is something as a church, we can think about more together as they're trying to, you know, move closer to wherever, you know, we think that we are supposed to, you know, end up in this. So, I think the response overall, I've really uh, been pleased at the way it seems to have sparked a lot of people just to be thinking a little bit more about the issue. 
So given some of those responses that you just mentioned where, where people said, you know, have you thought about this? Maybe it's incomplete. Maybe you could extend it. If you were going to follow up perhaps with another, another volume, sort of extending the conversation, what would you want to explore next? Uh, I think there are probably a couple areas in which I'd want to um, explore a little bit more. One is I talk a lot about the, I talk a bit about the body of Christ, but I'd like to talk a little bit more maybe about the family of God. Um, what do, you know, what might brother sister relationships look like in antiquity um, and how might that, you know, inform how we relate to one another, um, you know, in Christ? You know, obviously, I was thinking about male, female, we think about marriage relationships, but what about in the church? What does that, you know, look like? And so I think there is probably a lot of richness in terms of the family of God metaphor that I think would be helpful. And I'd like to investigate that a little bit more. And then the other thing is, I, this probably goes beyond my area expertise, but I really would like to do a little bit more exploring in terms of what might be some of the nature of gender differences, you know, that we have, because there's just a lot of literature out there. there there's a lot of you know, controversy over this. You know, there's some that say, you know, there are essential, you know, you know, are there feminine traits? You know, are there masculine traits? Uh, what do you do if you're a woman, but you tend to have more of those masculine characteristics or the other way around? Are there traits that are exclusively feminine, are exclusively masculine? So that I'd like to investigate that, but also I think I'd like to investigate maybe there are different ways of understanding um, male-female differences too. For example, are there beyond there might be characteristics? Um, are there different ways that we relate to one another? Um, do we have different core needs or drives? Um, I've found the work of Deborah Tannen as a linguist to be very interesting. She talks about the difference in terms of the way men and women communicate. So one of her ideas is that, you know, men, when they tend to communicate, she talks about it's a little bit more report talk. They give information. They want to sort of convey facts. Whereas women have a little bit more what she calls rapport talk. Um, they use communication as a way to relate to one another. So they may not be as much of like a giving a facts, but they talk in certain ways because they're trying to establish a bond. So if what she says is correct, well, I find that really interesting. And how might that relate to whether different strengths and weaknesses men and women bring to the church, but also what it means to be unified. Because I think one of the things I've been interested in is what does unity and difference mean? Um, you know, if you have people who are different in some ways, as I just mentioned earlier, there's sometimes a little bit of a dying to self. If you're trying to understand, you know, what the other person is like or what they're trying to say. So I think for me, a big thing would be, as I said, although this may be outside of my area of expertise would be, are there, you know, what are some of these gender differences? What's the area of gender differences? What do they look like? How do they impact, you know, how we relate to one another? And how does this relate to this idea of unity in the church? Yeah, thank you for those reflections. Um, and it would be interesting to sort of unpack that a bit more. Um, your reflections on gender difference and the significance of that, how does that connect for you in terms of modern discourses about gender that are happening at the moment? Yeah, well, I, I, this is a bit of a, a broad answer, I suppose. But I think one of the things is um, has made me realize a little bit more just how central um, gender is to our understanding of the biblical text um, in this. And I do think it's going to, it may reframe the discussion in certain ways. I have, I, I know someone who is an egalitarian and he was told that he's actually a complementarian because he holds that marriage is between a man and a woman. Um, and so I, I think what you kind of see is the discussion kind of broadening a bit, you know, you know, in this in this regard. And so we're going to have to be thinking about. And so I think what it comes down to is the importance of gender to our identity um, in Christ. 
you know, in this or to identity in terms of who God has made us to be. And so I guess on a, a sort of like a broad biblical sense where I might see the conversation of going where I think it would naturally uh, go is I think we need to really um, focus on a deeper understanding of Genesis, um, the creation of the world and God's creation of, of man and woman, male and female from the creation of the world and kind of see uh, the centrality of this. Because I, I think that our focus upon understanding the creation account, uh, Genesis 1 to 3, in terms of, you know, does Adam have a particular authority or not, has distracted us from other aspects of the passage uh, that kind of teach us a little bit in terms of like how gender figures into some of these basic ideas of creation. One of the things that's been really interesting for me is when I compare the Genesis creation account to other creation accounts. For example, there's um, another Near Eastern creation account where it talks about how uh, the gods decided to create human in order to work for them. And what they did is they created, you know, seven men and seven women, and they create them at the same time out of clay. And so on the one hand, so if you compare that account uh, to our Genesis account, well, first of all, you know, humans are not created to just work for the gods. They're also created in terms of a two-stage creation where woman is created from man. And as I sort of mentioned in my book, the uh, Genesis 2.24, the intent seems to be this one flesh union. And then you see the fulfillment of this in Ephesians 5. And so it seems that if you were to compare this, you know, accounts, the, the, the sort of emphasis upon the idea of difference, but with kind of a unique unity, you know, in this really to me kind of hits towards, there is some, you know, sort of specific reason for creating, you know, man and woman in this regard. And part of the goal is how we're supposed to relate to one another. Um, and this is part of our destiny, what we were created for. Um, another account that I find really interesting is in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. In the gospel, you have certain sayings like, uh, the woman must become male in order to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, or in the kingdom of God, you will have neither male nor female. And so this idea of gender here um, in this Gnostic gospel is on the one hand says, you know, gender will be done away with, you know, you know, at the eschaton. Or if you're going to have it, the whole point is that women need to become men in this regard. And so if you compare this to the biblical creation account um, and, you know, the ending of the New Testament, you see, well, actually, male, female does seem to be very important you know, even into the eschaton. And the point is the sort of the union of male, female is not that the woman now becomes, goes back to the man. And that's, you know, the, you know, that's the important part, but actually men and women stay male and female, and yet there is supposed to be a unity. And so it's not this merging that you might see in, in Thomas, but a unity made up of difference, which this kind of connects to maybe this idea of dying to self, okay? you know, in certain way to be together. So basically all that to say is that I think there's just a lot in terms of understanding the importance of gender, um, as we see it in Genesis, that I think can inform our position, you know, on this. And I think that, you know, maybe something we've missed a little bit because we've been focused on, you know, on other things, but hopefully that'll be an area that we can do a little bit more um, investigating about. I think one of the things I'm interested in with this kind of division between complementarianism and egalitarianism is I feel like I'm seeing a bit of a shift from people self-describing as complementarianism to talking about complementarity. And there's a kind of deliberate 
distancing from the label of complementarianism, but I guess still maintaining what to people kind of outside that position would still look like complementarianism. Uh, I just wonder if, if that's something that you've noticed and what you think about that shift, whether that does something to kind of break apart this binary a little bit or if it's kind of the same label in different in a different disguise. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I have noticed that, um, too. I, I think there is a little bit of a shift from moving sort of like identifying um, with a particular label. It's always on both sides in terms of that. But as you say, maybe it still might look uh, the same in that regard. I mean, it's hard for me to kind of predict where that's going to go or what it means, but I'm wondering if maybe one of the things is it means is that maybe people are engaging more with the ideas, you know, in this, which perhaps may lead to more, you know, openness in terms of investigating. Is there something else we need to be thinking about? Um, I think when we attach ourselves a lot to a particular side, then that's what we do. We sort of identify with a side. And there's a little bit less questioning about what might, you know, what might be involved in that. So I think there might be, you know, perhaps maybe that is indicative of a shift in terms of uh, the way people are thinking, uh, not identifying with a certain position as much, um, even if they seem to be, you know, living out in that way, but maybe more in terms of, you know, engaging more with, you know, the idea, the living it out, um, as opposed to saying, I am, you know, X. Yeah, I really like um, how you bring up the idea of the uh, unity um, in differences. And I was wondering how that relates also um, to like the diversity and inclusion inclusion movement happening right now, um, just with all the different cultural tensions and yeah, social unrest that's happening in the U.S. How um, does that also relate the, the idea of unity and differences relate to that? And that's a, a great question because it's so related to that, um, isn't that? And I think that there is a relationship to it. And I think I'd like to be able to just think a little bit more in terms of, again, you know, what do we mean by uh, diversity? What do we mean by uh, unity? What do we mean by inclusion? And a couple of things that I have is that I, I think, because I think as we're talking about sort of diversity inclusion, and there we have another kind of, you know, tension that goes on there, Right is this whole idea of, you know, if, for example, you know, I'm, I'm Asian, you know, how central is my being Asian, you know, to my, my race, to my understanding of who I am, or is it, should I be kind of colorblind because, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek, you know, in that. And I think there, um, that really illustrates uh, this idea of tension that you have. And one idea I've been thinking about is that what you have in the New Testament in this already, but not yet uh, eschatology here, is that you kind of have a both and um, that we do have in a sense, well, for, probably more for male, female creation differences. And yet there is a sort of like new creation unity we have. And in a sense, both are present. Now, in terms of race, what I might say, some of this is connected to this idea that we are embodied creatures. And as embodied people, um, my being female is a part of my embodiment. My being Asian is a part of my embodiment. And this impacts how I relate to the world and how people relate to me. And if I, if I were to say that I, you know, into eternity, I will carry some of these experiences with me, then I would say that it's part of my identity. Yet my overarching identity is my spiritual identity in Christ. And yet there's so much interaction in that. My spiritual identity in Christ helps me understand what happens to me, you know, in the body. And so I think what we have to do is be able to kind of understand how both of these figure into this. 
In terms of race and inclusion, um, diversity, you're going to see, of course, in uh, the worship scenes in Revelation, the idea of all the nations, tribes, tongues, which seems to indicate that does carry on into, you know, you know, in the eschaton. So I think in some ways, maybe we tend to go into an either or direction in this, but understanding that as people who are both embodied and in the spirit who live, you know, the already but not yet, that somehow both of these aspects are, you know, are, are present. I would say in some ways our, our spiritual identity in Christ is maybe it's more overarching, but at the same time, a holistic people that my, my life in the body is an integral part of who I am and you can't really separate it. So I think it does have a lot of implications for those because I think it is based upon a lot of the same um, underlying theological, eschatological, um, ecclesiological principles. Well, Dr. Lee Barnwell, thank you so much for joining us on the Two Cities podcast. Appreciate you calling us to be better complementarians and better egalitarians and uh, showing us the, the the bigger picture of what's really going on in scripture in terms of gender and, and even how this plays out all the way through to, to the eschaton. So just really appreciate having you on with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for your time and for that really fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Lee Barnwell. We're really grateful to have you. If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.